Welcome to All The Therapies. We're two clinicians who try out different therapeutic practices so you can find the right type of healing for you. I'm Abby Crom. I'm Mona E. Shaker. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump in now. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Scott. We're so excited to have you here. And as an introduction, we're going to be talking about crisis planning with Scott Rowland. He is a marriage and family therapist. He's also the lead clinical supervisor at a community mental health organization. Welcome, welcome. And can we start with a brief introduction, talk a little bit about who you are, your specialty, you know, how long you've been in the field? Sure. Thank you for inviting me today. Glad to be here. Yes, my name is Scott Rowland. I'm an LMFT and a lead clinical supervisor in a community-based organization, Mental Health. I've worked in community mental health for about seven years now, and I've worked in different areas of Los Angeles from East LA, South LA, and currently in mid-city, west side of town. Population that I work with is high acuity, high risk, adolescents, adults, LBGTQ, more in trauma, substance use, severe mental health issues, co-occurring disorders. And I am currently certified in CBT, mindfulness CBT, and IPT, and seeking safety. Wow. I love that you just have such a wide range of, you know, kind of specialties and people that you work with. I mean, it's awesome. You know, I think that that speaks to the breadth of your experience. So thank you. Thank you. So I know you work community mental health, and I know Mm -hmm. that you actually specialized in community psychology. So can Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about your experience with becoming a therapist and then how you ended up working at an agency? Sure. Great question. Thank you. So before I actually went into my master's program for you know clinical psychology, I'd spent probably 10, 12 years working in community-based organizations mm-hmm. already, working in some capacity of developing programs or harm reduction type interventions. And it was you know for all over LA County. So that kind of set the tone for just really sparking my interest in how rich the diversity is in LA, right? So then when I when I decided to go back to school, it was like, you know, I wanted to be a therapist, right? And so I wanted to work with these populations that I'd been working with for the last 12 years. So it wasn't just a therapist. There was a specialization, community psychology, which kind of the model in community psychology is you focus on the strength in that community and you build up that strength. So that's actually been a model that I've brought into the work that I do every day. So no matter what part of the city that I'm working in or what who the population is that I'm working in, something in their life, something in their community works already, and I start building off that. And then just my own personal experience. I mean, I've had my own struggles in life, so thank God for a couple really good therapists and a couple really wonderful community-based organizations that have really helped Mm -hmm. get me back on track. And, you know, there's some very passionate, dedicated people who work in these organizations. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate you sharing a little bit about that yourself. I think a lot of us get into the field through our own healing and our own work Mm -hmm. and um, why we're gravitating towards that work. And I appreciate the, you know, when we think about therapy, we think it just feels very like individualized, one-on-one, but to think about the context that the person lives in, the community itself, and what strengths can we pull from it, 
feels right. feels very powerful actually and I, and I love that there's a whole field dedicated to that yeah definitely so you work with a collaborative care model can you share a little bit about what that is sure so collaborative care for us we more refer to it as an integrated care model mm. okay so integrated care in the whole agency means it's a team of clinicians, psychologists who provide testing, psychiatrists, and including a medical team. And we collaborate with two community-based medical clinics. Mm. So for us and my team that I actually run, I have a team of six therapists, all specializing in different disorders. So I have people who are certified in CBT, IBT, eating disorders, trauma, DBT, right? I have three care coordinators, two psychiatrists, a housing specialist, and a medical care coordinator. I mean, it really gives definition to meeting the client where they're at. So, and often our clients, you know, do come in unstable in more ways than you can imagine. So by having a team of this nature working with you immediately, you can stabilize an individual and get their lives back on track, hopefully in a, you know, fairly quickly or in a way that they've never had. I think that's so important and working, you know, I'm in private practice, but I've worked in care teams. And that's one of the things I miss is Mm -hmm. having lots of people. Cause I do think it takes a team, you know, and in a way like you can create that when you're on your own, Mm -hmm. but I think there's just so much benefit to that, to having a team of people all with their own specialization and lens, you know, that can all bring their strength to the practice. Of course. Yeah. And just when you think of like any individual in this city today who lives, you know, somewhat marginalized, right? So when you think of the things that they may struggle with on a day-to-day basis, so just mm. to have someone help you with affordable housing yeah. and how many, how many people don't even go to a doctor and we can offer that to you. Some, <laughs> some of our clients have not had medical care in years and years, you know? So, I mean, it's just a very holistic approach to people who are severely, you know, hurting and, you know, need help right now. So it's beyond just the mental health capacity. So Scott, one of the reasons we started this podcast is there's so many acronyms and we know, I know Mm -hmm. what all those letters you said mean, but really quickly, could you just tell us CBT? What does that stand for? Cognitive behavioral therapies. IPT? IPT is interpersonal therapy. So it helps with family dynamics or just people relationships, you know, have relationship challenges. Perfect. And DBT? DBT, diabolical, wow, dialectical, now I'm going to miss it. <laughs> dialectical <laughs> behavior. Diabolical behavior. Right. Um, and we, I'm sure at some point we'll have episodes on all those, so we won't get into those now, but just so if people were curious what those letters are. Are you guys familiar with what Seeking Safety Model? Oh, and seeking, no, just tell us briefly what Seeking Safety is. Sure. Seeking Safety is a harm reduction model that really addresses post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. So it gives people coping skills, really useful around domestic violence, substance use, any any high-risk behaviors like that. Awesome. So if you're open, can you share with us a little bit about you know, you talked a little bit in the first question about having your own struggles. And so tell us a little bit about maybe what your experience has been utilizing some of these community mental health services. Sure. Thank you. Well, yes, I have had my own struggles in life. And the saddest thing is when you want to 
create things differently, but you just keep following these same patterns, right? And you end up, how did I get here again? Mm. So for myself, it became working with someone very closely by putting a plan in place before something happened because that pattern was going to reoccur again, right? I mean, I had enough evidence to see that. And it takes you to a very dark place, trust Mm me. Beats up your self-esteem, your self-will, so on and so forth. So we just started implementing these little, just very simple little things that, you know, I could do instead of. And the mindset was that you can still go ahead and do these other things, but before you do it, try this first, mm-hmm. right? Because our minds will say, no, I want to go. I don't want to. <laughs> so one of it was like, place a little index card in your wallet with three important phone numbers on it, right? And then even then, if I was uncomfortable talking about why I was calling, we had created these code words that I could use so that we were kind of having this dialogue that we knew what it was about, but we were just kind of being friends with one another. No one was trying to rescue me or save me. And it was a very comfortable feeling. And it created a safe place, you know, for me to start trying an alternative behavior first. Yeah. Right. And in my session, right, like it was, it felt really powerful. So, you know, I talked about in the previous episode that I struggled with suicidal ideation in the past Mm -hmm. and got to a a scary place once in my life. And it felt just really nice to have that crisis planning. There was something Mm -hmm. really like the structure of of it maybe, or like just, just knowing that there's something, I have a plan in the future, right? There was something Mm -hmm. just really Mm -hmm. comforting knowing that. Mm -hmm. So I I like that you spoke to that, you know, that feels relevant to the importance of of crisis planning. Mm -hmm. I was going to say there was another technique that we used as well, and it was about identifying a safe place. Mm. So often the trauma may be inside your house or inside these relationships that you're in, Mm -hmm. right? And so rather than result to the old behavior, which is very harmful or high risk, it's like, where could you go, even if it's just for a few minutes? Where's that place that belongs to you? And I still utilize that today, which is why I'm so comfortable outside in nature, because I learned very early on that that was so calming for me and my thought process and, you know, uh, sensory stimulation, right? As soon as you remove yourself from a situation, especially outdoors, all your senses immediately change. Mm. You hear things differently, you smell, see everything differently, and it can relax you. To me, that really encapsulates that community mental health piece, right? It's like, we cannot think about the person apart from their context, right? If there is right. a, a trauma happening or abuse happening or something triggering that, that's something that's triggering the cycle of, you know, a crisis or mm-hmm. a mental health condition, how important it is to even, th- even just to ask, where do you feel the safest? I mean, I think that mm-hmm. alone feels very radical, right? Again, it's like we're sort of, we're adding the addition of the environment to the person holistically, to the care. Of course, yeah. And it's also something they can easily attain. Mm-hmm. These are not, unimaginable or unreasonable task. This is something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I-, I wanted to ask you a question. So when we did our session, we did that index mm-hmm. card thing, which I really loved, right? Like knowing that mm-hmm. in a state of crisis, right? Like I- my brain is not thinking probably like it's not operating the same way where I'm when I'm relaxed, right? So knowing that I have a piece of paper with numbers that I can call, you as the therapist offered to put your name on that list. And so me with the two minds, the therapy mind was was wondering, you know, what are your boundaries and limitations of, of a client contacting their therapist in a crisis? Sure. That's a really good question because the population that I do work with really 
have not established or learned healthy boundaries. So again, kind of first reviewing with that individual, what a crisis is, why would you be calling me to begin with? Right. Mm -hmm. And establishing, you know, um, that level of uncomfortableness, insecurity, anxiety, we all have those. And how can you manage that? So first we would start developing coping skills to help manage those. And at that point, if, if you're unable to emotionally regulate, by all means, call me and we can do those things together over the phone. But going back to the community psychology model, the other tool that I would help provide for somebody is what other community resources are out there as well. Mm. So often in recovery, are you in a 12-step model? Uh, there's NAMI, there's a suicide prevention hotline. There's so many different resources so that I do not become the only person in your life that you call for everything. I cannot be somebody's everything 24-7. I think that's so important just for like our care as clinicians, right? You know, and so... Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's something that people often don't understand. Like, how as a therapist do you offer this care and can support so many people? And it's by these things being really clear. And even in just what you said, I Mm -hmm. think as your client, I would understand, like, what are the kind of, like, expectations and limitations Mm -hmm. to this, but also still feel you're really available to me, you know? So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure your clients do as well. So, and just for people, if you don't know, NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and they have a oh, ton of amazing you. resources. Mm-hmm. So I know we, I, like, we all forget, <laughs> like I just rattle off these acronyms myself too. But so Scott, I know your agency has a suicide prevention hotline. We'll be providing that mm-hmm. a suicide prevention center. So what can you tell us, especially maybe even in the last year, what can you tell us about who's been using and like benefiting from these services? Another good question. Thank you. So, you know, in the world of COVID, suicide has increased. We have actually expanded our suicide prevention center, and it's Mm -hmm. a national hotline, too, just so you know. The first things you would look at if you were working with an individual, I I always have a tendency to look at like loss. Where is some traumatic loss in their life? And it's important to measure what loss is to the client, right? So mm-hmm. it could be it could be a job, it could be a pet, it could be a relationship, but something that was significant to them, right? So also any of our clients that struggle with long-term depression, those clients we always evaluate and assess about every 30 days anyways. Um, a client whose baseline is depressive, right? That's the client that there's a Columbia suicide severity rating scale. Right. Um, it's not uncommon that I would do you know, that scale with my client maybe every 30 days. And I also want them familiar with the difference between feeling anxiety, feeling hopeless, as opposed to do I have an intent? It's mm-hmm. And it gives them permission to still have all that anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. And then along with that, I, I think it's important to look at the different demographics. And I actually have a few that I was kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. So last year, 34,000 people died of suicide across the whole country. And then I thought it was important to know that suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst people 25 to 34 years old. Wow. Yeah. Males complete suicide almost four times uh, more than females. And lesbian, gay, bisexual youth 
especially those who are rejected by their family, are eight times more likely to commit suicide. And in Los Angeles, we have a large population of, I don't like the word trans yet, but youth who basically are keyless, you know, that rely on the kindness Mm -hmm. of others and so on and so forth. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual adolescents are 190% more likely to use drugs and other alcohol than their heterosexual teen parts. And then sexual minority youth or teens that identify themselves as gay, lesbian, or bisexual are bullied two to three times more than heterosexuals, which increases the rate of um, suicide. And 18 veterans die by suicide each day. That's alarming. So if you work with any of these demographics or have clients, I think, that struggle with long-term depression, these would definitely be people that I I would have on my radar to just create a comfort level of talking about suicide, talking about your level of depression, talking about the coping skills that are working and those that are not so you can create others. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. And to that point, it is difficult, right? Like I even right now I'm feeling a little, like there's a little bit of discomfort because I think we don't talk about that. It is seen as taboo or maybe as like Mm -hmm. a moral weakness for you to even experience something like that. But I really like how you laid out that you know, we don't just exist in this vacuum. Like, again, we're going back to that community psychology model of, you know, LGBTQ, IA plus youth. If you have a family mm-hmm. that rejects you, I mean, how pivotal that is to like your development and your self-identity. So it makes sense that you would want not mm-hmm. want to be around anymore, right? Like, you don't you don't see the value mm-hmm. in your life or, or folks, you know, veterans, right? Experiencing so much trauma, loss, death, destruction. If you experience that over and over again, of course, you, you know, you don't want to live if you experience re experience that traumatic event. So I, I, I like that you added that piece as well. And and that brings me to this the next question. And I it's maybe a little bit loaded, but I've always wondered this myself, but what is your understanding of suicidality and why do some people experience it versus not others? Yeah, that's a difficult question, actually. So I've zeroed in on a couple things here. So my experience, obviously within working in the demographic that I work with is severe mental illness co-occurring disorders, substance use, homelessness. That's just all those high-risk behaviors to begin with, instability, right? But you would also want to look, even in the client that doesn't struggle with those day-to-day things, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of rage or uncontrolled anger, people who are seeking revenge, also looking at reckless behaviors, people who put themselves or others in danger all the time, increased alcohol or drug use, experiencing traumatic mood changes, people who do not practice good sleep hygiene, that feel agitated and irritable throughout the day, all of those factors could increase the risk Mm. of someone at least thinking about suicide. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really understanding this heightened emotional space that we can all hit like we it sounds like you know we all have the ability but like I also think it's good in it's one of those curiosities and I mean we talk about this a lot you know of just like how do I maybe go through the experience and then the person next to me does and we arrive at a different place like I think Mm -hmm. there's just always this curiosity and like you know, what dots mm-hmm. have to connect, what has to cut, you know, and I don't know if there is an answer that we know for sure, but. I have found sense of purpose 
Mm. If I'm sitting with somebody who's struggling with many different variables in their life, but they have a sense of purpose, Mm. that is a big signal for me. But if you're sitting with someone that doesn't know who they are or what their purpose is today and tomorrow, that's the person that you need to start having dialogue with about Do you, and it's, it's okay to say, do you mind if we talk about this? You know, I'm kind of curious, let's explore this a little bit more. And it's okay to start having that. I often will let my client know why I'm asking these questions. If I open the door first, I'm giving them permission to maybe talk about something that they're holding in. Yeah. You know, I, I think, and it probably gets into our, our next question, but you know, I think we don't really, again, it's not something we really learn. It's not a modality, but I feel the same thing and it doesn't have to be one thing, you know, everybody's going to find that for themselves, but mm-hmm. connecting to something bigger than yourself essentially is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like we all go through struggles, but it's like, mm-hmm. if I feel not connected to anything, it mm-hmm. is going to be hard to walk through that struggle. But if mm-hmm. there's a wider net, I actually feel a part of, you know, whether that's people or a belief system, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm all, like always kind of searching for that with, with Mm -hmm. clients. And so that's a big part of how I understand that. I don't think I thought Mm -hmm. about it until you just said it, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's definitely part of how I think about how the healing process works, but how do you think like healing in the healing process works? Sure. Back to one other thing. When we safety plan with somebody, when you create a safety plan with somebody, when you think of in, in maybe three or four things that you put in the safety plan, sense of purpose is going to be one of those. What are you going to do tomorrow? Who needs you here tomorrow? Mm -hmm. So that's what you're helping that client attach to is why their purpose. The healing process, the healing process, again, is always going to be a safe space for dialogue, you know, reducing any shame or guilt associated with tense or thoughts, right? Because everyone's just holding on to those and just give me permission to be, this is your safe place. Let's talk about this, you know? I think it's important to maybe inquire as soon as possible, what were the triggers? Like while they're fresh, while you remember these things, what was that one thing that was the last Mm. thing that you couldn't handle, right? That led up to that event, right? And that also helps you when you're putting your safety plan in place the next time, right? I think it's important for me as a clinician, because I have had clients who have had attempts, is to talk about what prevented them from letting me know. Mm -hmm. Because no matter how much I think I've set the stage for someone to be comfortable with me, maybe they're not, and ask them what would I've looked for next time? Or what made them uncomfortable to tell me, you know, when they see me last, that they were, you know, even contemplating this. And then I also believe psychoeducation, right? That again, going back to resources out there. So, you know, we do have a suicide prevention center, and I think it's important that people know that it's not just for people who are thinking about suicide, but it's also like a family dynamic or loved ones as well. So it includes support groups and workshops for those who have suffered the loss of someone from suicide, as well as someone who has attempted suicide. So there's support for everybody. Psychoeducation, when it comes to suicidality or self-harm, is one of the best tools that we can educate the whole family as well as the individual Mm. of why. Because everyone has a tendency to kind of internalize the whole behavior. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to your point of the just even talking about it relieves that pressure, right? Like even just Mm -hmm. putting a name to it. And I think, again, we it's one, a scary experience if you experience it. And two, there's a lot of shame around it as well. So Mm -hmm. I I appreciate 
even creating that safe space to talk about it and like look at it is in itself is so healing. And that reminded me again, I'm just going to go back to my, my experience of when I was a kid. So I, my parents were both Mm -hmm. immigrants and I think a lot of children of immigrants could really relate to this. Every time I felt sad or depressed, my parents would be like, back in our Mm -hmm. country, your life would have been a lot different. You should just be grateful a hundred percent of the time that you're in America and you have like, you know, uh, your own mm-hmm. bedroom. Like, wow. So there was like never, <laughs> never kind of space to be sad. And, and I do see this actually a lot with a lot of my clients who are also children of immigrants as well. So, so anyways, I, I just appreciate us even talking about it. Like that to me was, it just feels really healing and powerful. And to that point, so what would you say to somebody who is on the fence? You know, maybe they are experiencing a mental health crisis, but they're on the fence about reaching out for help, right? Because maybe of the, that shame that's involved. Mm-hmm. Good question. At that point, everything has to be very inviting. You are inviting mm-hmm. the person in to have a discussion with you, right? So, and I, I noticed, Mona, when you were just talking, you would say that your parents would tell you, you should, right? You should, you know, so mm-hmm. that's definitely the language you want to stay away from with somebody. So you're inviting them in to discuss their experience with you, right? So you don't want to take away their power. You want to give them power, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you keep the dialogue very simple. You And you validate the pain or the anger, whatever it is that they're feeling right there, just validate it with them, right? And then just ask them if there's anything that they'd like to talk about with you, you know? I think it's important to bring the individual to present where they are right here and now. Because mm-hmm. usually whatever they're thinking about has something to do with what's already happened or something that's going to happen. Where are you at right now and how, how can we manage this situation right here, right? And then just some basic questions around just their well-being. Did you eat today? You know, have you slept last night? You know, just health, you know, when you look at just health, like I mentioned earlier, like people with lack of sleep, the mindset, the irritability, the anger, the sadness that comes from just lack of sleep, right? I think it's important to to maybe inquire about if they've used anything today, you know, um, whether even just alcohol or marijuana, what, and so that you know what other substances or how their behaviors or thoughts are being affected by something else. Also, too, it's at that point, you would try to create a safety plan, which in that safety plan would have a sense of purpose. That safety plan hopefully has other people included in it, a check-in period, you know, so that the client's following up with you the next day. You would also provide some resources. Again, like I mentioned, like the NAMI National Alliance on Mental Illness, the Suicide Prevention Hotline, there's a couple warm lines, and maybe somebody else they could talk to tonight if I wasn't available to them. You know, I think a lot of people would probably like to have you on the other line if they, you know, were feeling this way. Where where can people find you? Maybe specifically if they wanted to work with you directly or you can mm-hmm. share any like agency or resources that you have. Sure. Okay. So I do have a psychology today page. And so my profile's on there and you can just it automatically goes to my email address, which is scottroland.therapy at gmail.com. There's also a website, Alita Offices. I have a profile and a web page on there as well. So you can just, you know, email me there and it goes to my website. I also belong to a couple of Facebook groups. I think it's what, what is it? Therapists in private practice, therapists on West Los Angeles and mental health professionals. And do you want to share any of the hotline numbers? Sure. Let's see. So NAMI is NAMI National Alliance on Mental Illness. And that just so you know, too, NAMI is for families and individuals. 
So the client can actually go to their own support group and the family can go to their own support group. Uh, NAMI is 1-800-950-6264. And SAMHSA, SAMHSA has a website, which is easy to go to. And there's different phone numbers on there for suicide, substance use, and other basically high-risk behaviors. So we'll put all the information Scott just shared in the show notes. So please make sure to check that out. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Scott. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for joining us. Check out our show notes to learn more about this episode and to find all the ways to follow us. And remember, if you're curious, try it.